It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I had a great experience uh, on the way into the station today. I had a late dinner, and uh, it was on the fly, so I had to stop at a fast food joint. And typically, as you well know, if you ever find yourself patronizing these places, typically it's it's kind of a crapshoot as to what kind of service you're going to end up with, and it's almost never good. Like it's almost it's always it's sometimes it's acceptable, sometimes it's okay, but it's very very rare that I find myself in a fast food service situation where I think to myself, man, that guy's on the ball or that store really has it together. Like that thought almost never occurs to me, and the, but it did tonight. It, it was really kind of like I was taken aback by how good the service was that I got in the drive through on the way to work today. You know, the kid was, you know, he was, he was asking the questions right on cue. You know, he, he took my card, gave it back to me before I even knew he'd ran it. He, he had the food held out towards me before I even knew it was there and it was the process was just so quick and so professional. And you know what the first thing I thought of was? What's that? After a wow, that kid's not gonna last here. He's good. <laughs> well, you see, what you should do is if you got the receipt with the feedback on it, like you should call, you should like actually take the survey or call the feedback number and give them positive feedback. But see, and say that guy's name if you knew it. But see, that's my point. Is as soon as it comes to light, which it will. Right. As soon as it comes to light that he really knows what he's doing and is talented and, and actually has some merit, they're going to find some other place to put him or he's going to get a job someplace else where that's, those qualities are, are better rewarded. That's how it usually goes. Yeah. Which, you know, goes back to the whole point about the minimum wage. Right. You know, this idea that you, you ought to you, you ought to be able to make a full time living and support a family of four if you're working full time. Right. Well, no. Like the. Nobody take, go, goes into a career in fast food unless they're looking at it as a path to, like, upper management, right? Or they want to manage their own store or whatever the case may be. Uh, somebody who's good at that job is going to find other opportunities, and they're going to end up making more money, which is the, the positive thing for this kid in this situation. It's a negative for me because it means that my time of good service at that particular store is limited because he will soon be gone. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us tonight. 9 to 11 weeknights is when you can catch us live and local. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio apps, two ways to stream the program. Let's get back into talking about Neil Gorsuch. I am of the firm belief that Republicans are missing a tremendous opportunity here. Uh, to differentiate themselves from the Democrats and really to sell to to push Gorsuch over the finish line and to sell the American public on not only the the uh, the merit of Gorsuch's nomination uh, but also the, a premise upon which future nominations should be made. All right. And in order to kind of set this up for you, let's let's just get to the facts of where we're at with the Gorsuch nomination process right now from the Star Tribune. 
Democrats claimed the votes they needed Monday to block President Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, but the victory was only fleeting, setting up a historic showdown with Republicans who intend to rewrite Senate rules and muscle Neil Gorsuch onto the high court. The coming fight was assured as the bitterly divided Judiciary Committee voted 11 to 9 along party lines to send Gorsuch's nomination to the full Senate, where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky has vowed he will be confirmed Friday. Short of the 60 votes needed to overcome procedural hurdles, McConnell is ready to lead Republicans in a unilateral voting change so significant in the rules-conscious Congress that it's been dubbed the nuclear option, lowering the confirmation threshold to a filibuster-proof simple majority in the 100-member Senate. Senator Chris Coons of Delaware became the key 41st vote for the Democrats Monday, declaring during committee debate that Gorsuch's conservative record showed an activist approach to the law and that he evaded questions during his confirmation hearings. Coons also said that Republicans' treatment of former President Barack Obama Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland left lasting scars after they denied him so much uh, as a hearing following the death of Justice Anton Scalia earlier last year. We are at a historic moment in the history of the United States Senate due to actions by both parties, Kuhn said. We have eroded the process for reaching agreement and dishonored our long traditions of acting above partisanship. By day's end, 43 Democrats had said they won't support Gorsuch. The long-term consequences of the coming confrontation could be profound as the rules change Republicans intend to enact would apply to future Supreme Court nominees, too, allowing them to be voted on the court without any input from the minority party. And though predicting a justice's votes can be difficult, confirmation of the 49-year-old Gorsuch is expected to restore the conservative majority that existed while Scalia was alive, which could then be in place or even expand over decades to come as some of the more liberal justices age. For Republicans and Trump, Gorsuch's confirmation will be a moment of triumph, a bright spot in a troubled young administration that's failed on the legislative front with the health care bill and is under investigation over Russia connections. The nomination of Gorsuch, by contrast, has won several or universal praise from Republicans, some of whom call his appointment Trump's best move so far as president. I would agree with that. Gorsuch has spent more than a decade on the federal appeals bench in Denver, where he's issued consistently conservative rulings, and he appeared on Trump's list of potential candidates partly generated by the Federalist Society and Heritage Foundation during the campaign. Now, what I want to get to here, and unfortunately it's not included in uh, in this article, is you've heard, if you've been listening to this air, you've heard during the news segments a lot of the quotes that have been thrown around by Democrats regarding why, while, or, or why, Neil Gorsuch must be blocked, right? Why they are going to filibuster him, why they're going to fight to the bitter end to keep him off the Supreme Court. And across the board, the the theme that emerges from those criticisms is that in contrast to what was stated in that article where uh, Kuhn stated that conservatives are appointing an activist, no, 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 no. It's precisely because Gorsuch is not an activist that Democrats oppose him. What do we mean by judicial activist, right? Because this term is is wielded by both sides, you know, left and right, willy-nilly, judicial activist. And it seems to mean, in practice, the judge did something I don't like. Like, that's the shorthand, right? The judge did something I don't like, therefore they're a judicial activist. No, that is not the definition, right? What is what is 
objectively true about an activist judge is that they are actively working to create law out of whole cloth based upon their opinion, not based upon what the law actually says, not based upon a reading of its letter and spirit, but based upon their whims. And what we have seen time and again with every single quote that's been offered by Democrats in opposition to Neil Gorsuch is that I don't think something to the effect of I don't think he's going to rule in favor of the little guy over the corporations. I don't think he's going to rule to protect fill in the blank rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, you know, people who have dyed their hair purple rights against the big, bad corporations, the big, bad, powerful interests, the rich white guys in America, you know, what have you. Forget the fact it, it doesn't even reference anything about the law, right? Nowhere in their evaluation is, hey, is this guy good at looking at what the law says, looking at precedent, looking at the spirit of the law, looking at what the, those who debated its passage and, and uh, into law, its ratification, what have you, what they actually intended, and then ruling accordingly. Is he good at that? Yes or no? That is not the measure that the Democrats are applying. The measure that they are applying is, is this a guy who's going to change the law to mean what we want it to mean? Now, a better, more effective Republican Party would be able to jump off of that to demonstrate the lawlessness of the Democrats. And specifically, how they are trying to utilize the courts to defy the will of the American people. How many times... Have, have courts, have judges, either individually or as part of a panel, overturned referendums that were passed by the people or laws that were formulated by legislatures that were elected by the people. And think about the amount of, the amount of work that goes into getting people elected, right? The, the, the process that a candidate has to go through in order to get on the ballot and then attract the votes necessary to win. And then collectively, how hey, all the effort that a, a majority in a legislature has to go through in order to get elected, the people express their will through that entire process. They have a debate over what the law ought to be. They pass the law, which is an extremely hard thing to do with you know a, a herding cats to that effect. They get it done. It becomes the law of the land. And here comes a single judge. Or a panel of judges, three, five, what have you, depending on which level of court we're talking about. And they just say, nope, we're not going to have it. We, we don't think your law is any good. Or we're going to interpret it to mean the complete opposite of what you actually said. That is what the left wants. They, while, while posing, while posturing as being the party of majority rule, the party of democracy, Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's party, right? We're for the people. We're for what the people want. Except for when they want something that we don't want. And then it's time to call in the judges. 
And then we'll trust on the judges to fight for the little guy, even though collectively the little guys just told you exactly what they want and it's 180 degrees opposite of what you do. It's all a lie. It's all a lie. And the, and the Democrats are admitting it. They're openly admitting it every single time they open their mouths about Gorsuch. They are admitting that they don't care about your opinion. They don't care about who you elected to the legislature. They don't care about the laws that your representatives crafted, drafted, debated, signed, and passed. They don't care about any of that. They just want what they want like little children. And if they can't get it, then by God, they're going to get a bully in a black robe to get it for them. And they're admitting that that's what they want. That's why they don't like Gorsuch, because he's not that bully. They don't like Gorsuch specifically because he takes his job seriously. That should tell you everything you need to know about how horrific the status quo, the standard, the average Democrat is. As a party, this is what they believe, that the law means whatever they think it does in the moment and has no basis whatsoever in what has actually been put to paper and voted upon through due process. It's chaos. They are the party of chaos. They are a movement of chaos. They want what they want, and they're going to get it through any means necessary. This is what Republicans should be saying. This is, the, this is the narrative that they should be advancing every time they get in front of a camera, every time they get in front of a microphone. But instead, you know, we're talking about how cute the nuclear option is. Well, you could say, too, that the Republicans, the Republicans are obviously losing the war in the media. And... You could even say that they're missing the chance to argue how Gorsuch protects freedom and protects the little guy, as they, as the Democrats are trying to argue. Yeah, well, and that's just it, is if, if, you, if you want to, quote-unquote, protect the little guy, then first and foremost, protect his right to have his will recognized in law. You know, if he's going to go to the trouble of electing people, and then lobbying his, his elected officials to the effect of having laws passed that say specific objective things, then ha if you actually care about that little guy, then respect the law that he chose through the consent of the governed to live under. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. Brad Omlin producing the program, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. All right, I got four stories here in front of me that are all tied together by a single theme, and that theme is racism, race and race relations. Uh, otherwise, they really have very little in common. Uh, but they do, they do all speak to the left's status as the natural home for the remnant of racists in the American culture. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5. FM 651-989-5855. The number to join our program, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. Let's begin from the lighthearted, <laughs> if you could be lighthearted about racism, and uh, move to the more serious, starting at Wired.com. Thanks to Twitter, Ghost in the Shell never stood a ghost of a chance. <laughs> I'll see what they did there. 
It might take a few months or even a few years, but eventually Scarlett Johansson's Ghost in the Shell will have an afterlife. The live-action adaptation of the Japanese classic is a complete cyber-bore, narrative-wise, but for those who gush over big-screen artistry, there's plenty to get lost in. The opulent, expensive CGI visuals, the gorgeous Clint Mansell, Lauren Balaf score, pulsing and plinking like a tangerine dream nightmare. That's, I, okay, we're getting a little weird here. It's one of those films destined to be salvaged by the web where the movie's defenders will advocate for it via frame-grab sprees or the occasional subreddit threads. Ghost will find its followers. And the here and now, though, Ghost in the Shell is an all-encompassing embarrassment, the kind of movie you might not want to admit you watched, and which, judging by the box office, not a lot of people bothered to see in the first place. The film earned just $19 million domestically in its opening weekend, coming in third behind the still-running Beauty and the Beast and the surprise smash, Oh, look, Alec Baldwin is a talking baby. I guess that's cute to some people. That crash came despite the fact that the latest version of Ghost, which is based on the long-running Magna and anime series, is gifted with an estimated $110 million budget, a major star, a teen-baiting PJ-13 rating, and a nearly 3,500-screen opening weekend. In what's been a notably healthy box office year, Ghost should have shellacked the competition. But on the internet, Ghost has been a dud in the making since at least January 2015 when Johansson's casting was first confirmed. And now we get to the part of the story that has to do with race. The news set off a two-year-long preemptive outcry on the web where online petitions and thoughtful Twitter threads address the film's whitewashing. There you go. Here's another key phrase. Cultural appropriation. That's been a point of contention with several works from the last year, including Doctor Strange, The Great Wall, and Netflix's Iron Fist. But Ghost in the Shell's transgressions were perhaps the most deeply felt. Here was a landmark piece of Japanese pop culture whose one whose does-it-mean-to-be-human ideas and hacker-trash aesthetic had already been co-opted by U.S.-produced films like The Matrix, Matrix and AI, being reimagined with a white American lead actress and an English director. It didn't help that a year before its release, rumors surfaced that the filmmakers had tested digital effects that would have allowed certain performers to shift their ethnicity so they could resemble Asian characters. By the time the film opened on Friday, it had shifted from problematic to full-on oof-inducing weight. Didn't we all agree this was a bad idea? Now, I think that's about as much as we need to take in of the article to get the idea of the case that they're making. Does anybody think... For one second, Brad, I'll ask you, do you think that the reason people aren't going to see Ghost in the Shell is because Scarlett Johansson is in it? That would be a reason to go see it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, especially after seeing the commercials with her in a bodysuit. Yep. Like, wow. <laughs> um, but I don't think that it just didn't have a good advertising game. Like, I mean, I, I don't pay attention to movies that much. I'm not really a movie guy. Yeah. So, but, I mean, this was at least, like, I knew Scarlett Johansson in a bodysuit, but I didn't know the, <laughs> the, the name of the film. You, could, you couldn't have told me. But and, I think it was just maybe not good advertising or promotion. And I recognize that you might not be the best person to ask this question, too. But just, you know, because you're my sample that's in the room right now. At any point in your personal deliberation, to whatever extent you had one, of whether or not you were going to see Ghost in the Shell, did you think to yourself, you know, there just aren't enough Asians represented in this cast? 
I don't think that enough people that like were considering to see this movie understood the background behind the film. Right. They could have just said, oh, Scarlett Johansson in a bodysuit. I'm going to go see that. Right. And so, no, I don't think that the idea that there was not enough Asians in the film crossed anybody's mind. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, these other films that they cite, right, like Doctor Strange, tremendously popular, right? That was that had the same kind of criticisms that it was cultural appropriation and whatnot, which is interesting seeing as how Doctor Strange is a character that's been in Marvel Comics for decades and what it's suddenly cultural appropriation. Uh, Iron Fist, which I have not seen and understand is not particularly good. Um, but then The Matrix, extremely popular, right? Uh, that did well. There have been other other films that have gotten this accusation of being cultural appropriation or have, having been whitewashed that have done well. So there is no real tie to base this idea that the reason for commercial failure has something to do with this leftist agenda that everybody needs to be represented uh, and that cultures need to be – that we basically need to have racial segregation in film. That's the argument that's being made here, right? We need to have racial segregation in film. And the the odd thing about that in relation to Ghost in the Shell in particular is that there's this thing about anime, and I'm not a big anime fan or Magna fan, you know, Japanese animation, but one thing I have noticed is that they, that is to say the Japanese who produce this stuff, tend to portray their characters as Caucasian, which I've always found kind of strange, but whatever, dude. That if that's the what you want to portray, then portray it, right? And I don't know. I don't know if it's because they're trying to appeal to an international market. They're trying to appeal to the American market, or or, or if it's just like a stylistic thing, or whatever the case may be. I mean, you go back and look at you know geisha paintings and what have you, and they're in in white face or whatever the case may be. It doesn't. But the point is, is that is that cultural appropriation? Should we maybe start this conversation with the Japanese, right? Have they appropriated our culture? Have they appropriated Caucasian, European culture by portraying their characters as as uh, as white? I, I don't know that anybody's thought to ask that question. From Heat Street, mother expelled for a multicultural playgroup because she's white. You know, it's tough to feel sorry for her because she went to a multicultural playgroup. Like... That would be my my first clue that I don't need to participate. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. A mother in Australia has been forced to leave a playground with her kids after the officials told her they can't play in a, quote, multicultural group, unquote, because she's white. The mother said uh, she went with her eight-month-old baby and her four-year-old son to Alexandria Park Community Center, located in the inner city of Sydney. 
Shortly after she arrived to the community center for the play group, a staff member approached her asking whether this was her first time. <laughs> I get the sense that you haven't been here before. <laughs> Rather than being welcoming, the staff member announced that Cloverdale isn't allowed to be there. I'm sorry, you can't come here. It's a multicultural playgroup, staff member said and asked. Can I ask what your cultural background is? Now, again, does it even need to be said? I, I guess I have to say it. What would the headline be if the races were reversed in this situation? If you had a black mother with her black babies show up to a playground and w was approached by a staff member and told, hey, Clearly, this is your first time because we don't want your kind here, right? Which is basically what this woman, it was exactly actually what this woman was told. What would the headlines be? I think we all know, right? And once again, it demonstrates the fact that the left is in fact the natural home for racists. The left is where racists continue to exist today. Not only exist, but to proudly announce themselves, to live a lifestyle of bigotry. That's what that is. You have a multicultural playgroup, the explicit purpose of which is to exclude people who, whose skin color you don't like. If that's not racism, nothing is. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing Argument is the name of the program. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omlin produces the program. Hashtag TCNT on Twitter. Brad actually has a uh, really insightful post up there right now. Susan Rice unmasked story. The story about Susan Rice and her unmasking of individuals involved in the Trump transition team. That story isn't being picked up by the MSM, mainstream media, because it's hard to understand. But that's exactly why media has failed. That's it. That's it exactly. You know, the, if and, and this is why the case that Ted Koppel made last week on CBS Sunday morning, you know, when he was making the case that, you know, back in the good old days... You know, we used to have these e these evening newscasts around which the nation gathered like a tribe to have dispensed to them the wisdom of the elders. And we had this common set of facts that we all agreed upon. And now, by God, we have this cacophony of voices, and it's so difficult to understand what's true and what's not. The reason why nobody believes that the mainstream media is in the business of getting at the truth is precisely because of what Brad points out here. Because they, they don't work to bring you the actual story. They don't work to bring you, and I'm not talking about, you know, like different perspectives on the story. I'm talking about basic facts. Like just the, the basic underlying facts of the story, they don't seek. They take, they, they, they take whatever is spoon-fed to them and lazily regurgitate it, particularly when it happens to support a, a political agenda and an ideological narrative that they personally agree with or institutionally agree with. That is beyond question. We're seeing it right now with the Susan Rice story. And again, the danger of this, I, you know, I, I don't raise this point merely as a partisan, merely as a Republican, merely as a conservative. You know, 
I, I'm on the record being highly critical of Donald Trump, one of the most critical Minnesota Republicans of the president of the United States, particularly when he was campaigning. To me, this is not about partisanship. It's not about, you know, Donald Trump protecting Donald Trump, protecting the Trump administration and what, or, or even protecting the conservative agenda or the Republican agenda or what have you. To me, this is about something larger than that, something more lasting than that. Because I got news for you. Elections happen every two years, right? People in power, they come and they go. The pendulum swings this way, and then it swings back the other way. You have Republicans, and then you have Democrats. And that's always going to be the case until our constitutional system completely breaks down and we have something different. But for the time being, there is constant change regarding who is in power. The thing that's not going to change is the, the integrity of our institutions, right? And so if we have a lack of integrity in the fourth estate, a lack of integrity uh, in the media, we, we don't have a media that is, that is capable of or even attempting to do its job, which is to seek truth and present facts to the American people so that they can make opinions, they can form opinions that are relevant to the formation of public policy. If they are not going to do that, then there, it, it creates a vacuum into which precisely what Ted Koppel was complaining about last week happens. You end up having commentators like yours truly and everybody else you hear on this air and everybody you hear on MSNBC or Fox News, commentators creating the narratives that people believe as fact. If, if Koppel wants to solve that problem, it's real easy. He could become a journalist. He could do it tomorrow. He could do it today. He could decide, you know what? From this day forward, I'm going to seek the truth and I'm going to present facts and I'm going to take my opinion out of it. And I'm just going to tell the story. I'm going to go where the story takes me, whether it's politically expedient or not. Somehow, I don't think that's going to happen. Let's talk uh, a bit more about this racism stuff. Let's see here. From The Guardian. Diversity doesn't make racism magically disappear. We can't breed our way beyond racism. Many think mixed-race babies and browner demographics will automatically usher in a post-racial world. They interpret the projections of a majority-minority shift in our nation, now set to take place in 2044, as a sign of guaranteed progress. Changing faces in the U.S. are seen as anti-racist destiny. But don't overestimate the power of this post-racial cocktail. In Jordan Peele's brilliant film, Get Out, uh, he reminds us of the importance of questioning overly optimistic narratives of racial progress. Made by someone who has been open about being biracial and married to a white woman, this film creatively uses the genre of horror to depict the persistence of racism through a story about an interracial couple. In many ways, it can be seen as a strident critique of a liberal brand of racism that has blossomed in the post-Obama era. The perspective that multiracial demographics naturally erode bias and inequality tends to lack historical and global perspective. Consider Brazil. There, white people are a minority, but are still dominant. Despite being outnumbered, their incomes are more than double that of Afro-descendants. White men are also vastly overrepresented in Brazil's new government. If more mixed people guarantee greater tolerance, then Brazil and most of Latin America should be a racial paradise. Although a great degree of metestige, like something that's some Spanish word, 
or racial mixing has taken place since the time of conquest, indigenous and Afro-descendant people in Latin America remain disproportionately poor, discriminated against, and locked out from opportunity. Sociologist Eduardo Bonella Silva, in his book Racism Without Racists, has speculated whether the racial order in the U.S. might eventually resemble that of Latin America and Caribbean nations. In this case, white supremacy and racial stratification will continue to operate in the U.S. even as it becomes a majority-minority nation. What you're reading here, or what you're listening to, is a preemptive narrative to try to justify the continuation of the left's race-baiting, even as demographics shift. You know, a lot of conservatives, a lot of people leading up to the election of Barack Obama, and certainly once he was elected, there was this thought for a, a single moment, right, a brief flickering moment, there was this idea that finally we've moved past this race conversation, right? I mean, we've elected a black man president of the United States. So clearly at this point, you know, enough of us have gotten over the idea that there's some sort of inherent inferiority in non-whites that we've been able to elect as the leader of the free world an individual of minority status, right? But, of course, the, the presidency of Barack Obama, I don't even think it's arguable. Like, I want to instinctively say arguably, but I don't even think it's arguable. His presidency, certainly in my lifetime, has been the most racially divisive period of time in modern American history. Black Lives Matter didn't exist prior to Barack Obama. You know, when I, when I was growing up, you know, like Jordan Peele, I am a, a biracial person, right? Like Jordan Peele, I'm involved in an interracial marriage, right? I don't remember growing up as a kid. You know, I grew up in Detroit for a few years, and then we moved here to Minnesota, yeah, this is where I came of age, where I went to high school and, and such. And, you know, I was the odd guy out racially. I always was, no matter what room I found myself in. Because it turns out multiracial is the ultimate minority, right? I don't recall it being a huge problem. I don't even recall it being a major point of conversation amongst many people. I mean, you know, race got mentioned, of course, every once in a while. And certainly there were episodes in my life that were that, where race played a role. But the, the persistent conversation that exists today where it's, it's part of our daily discourse and we're wringing our hands over it and rending our robes and gnashing our teeth over race, that wasn't the case before Barack Obama. And, and what's being argued here at The Guardian is that we ought to move that forward, that no matter how, no matter how many families— decide to blend right no matter how how uh homogenous as steve king would say right the nation becomes no matter how much we begin to resemble the the orange people from the future in south park that we're never going to get past white supremacy it's always going to be a problem which should tell you exactly where their motives lie they need it to be a problem they need it to be a problem because it is a source of their political power and it is a platform upon which they can launch their attack on capitalism and freedom. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, com. One of the primary reasons why I had such a hard time 
getting behind Donald Trump uh, in last year's election was because of the emergence of the alt-right and their affinity for him. And, you know, the, the, I phrased that sentence in that way for a reason. It was their affinity for him, not his affinity for them, but their affinity for him. The fact that the people who believed what the alt-right believes thought that their guy was Donald Trump, that their moment had come, that, that, that it was a dawn of the alt-right moment. That was a cause for profound concern. And it was exacerbated by the reluctance and, and the slow reaction of Donald Trump to their support, to refute their support and to differentiate himself from them. I have since come to accept and sincerely believe that Donald Trump doesn't have an alt-right bone in his body, right? Like for, he doesn't, he doesn't have that kind, he doesn't have any kind of ideological foundation upon which he's basing his decisions. It's all kind of random, right? You know, he has these, these general impulses, national populist impulses, but you know, he's not reading any books on philosophy. It's very ad hoc. It's very ad hoc, right? So this idea that Donald Trump is alt-right is, is nutty. He never has been. I don't think he has the capacity to be. I don't think he has any interest in being it. Nevertheless, it is still worthwhile to take a look at the alt-right, to take a look at what they prescribe, and to take a look at why it was that they felt their moment had come with the ascendancy of Donald Trump. And we're going to take a look at that here in our final segment, uh, closing out our conversation on race. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you sticking with us. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream the program. From Vox, an admittedly lefty source. But you know what they say about blind squirrels and broken clocks? Every once in a while, they trip upon something worthwhile. When Mike Cernovich, one of the most prominent alt-right internet trolls supporting Donald Trump, was interviewed on 60 Minutes, he used the platform to spread conspiracy theories about Hillary Clinton's health and to allege that she is involved with pedophilic sex trafficking operations. But he also declared his belief in single-payer health care. I believe in some form of universal basic income, he told CBS's Scott Pelley, citing concerns about technological unemployment. I'm pro-single-payer health care. Is that right wing or is that left wing anymore? Well, if you have a lot of people, a large swath of the company or country are suffering, then I think we owe it to all Americans to do right by them and to help them out. This might seem like a bizarre position for a far right conspiracy theorist to take. Single payer health care, after all, entails nationalizing most or all of the health insurance industry and having the government set prices for doctors services. Conservatives in America have spent the better part of the last century arguing that the idea is socialistic, would lead to long waits for life-saving treatment, and would give the government power over the life and death of its citizens. And, of course, that argument is absolutely 100% correct. But Surovich is less a traditional conservative than he is a Trumpist, and Trumpism in its purest alt-right variety cares more about white working-class identity politics than traditional conservatism. Now, it's important, again, you know, what they're trying to conflate Trump with the alt-right here. They're wrong to do that because Trump is not the alt-right. 
they are two separate things. It is true that the alt-right had an affinity for Trump, but that was a one-way affinity, right? So if you can, in your, in your mind, scratch out the Trump connection here and just focus on the alt-right, there is something of value being said here at Vox. They cite the fact that alt-righters, and, you know, it's worth pausing here to know. I hear Sean Hannity on this air use the term alt-left, left, you know, like alt is just like a brand name now. Right. It's just what we're going to it, it's kind of like that that judicial activist thing. You just call it out whenever it's convenient to blame, to brand the other guy is not right or, or having made the wrong decision. There's no such thing as the alt left. OK, there's only the left. We don't need an alternative version of the left to demonize because the left as a whole is God awful. Right. They all believe the same thing. Government ought to be huge and have total control of your life. You ought not have any liberty. And they're going to decide who lives, who dies and how much they have on their way out. Right. That's the left. There is no alternative version of it. Just the one version. And it sucks. We should be against it. The alt right actually is something distinctive from the right. Right. That's why they call themselves. And it is a term that they coined. Richard Spencer coined the term. They are something different than conservatism. Right. And this article points that out. Cernovich and others who identify as alt-right are pro things like a universal income, universal basic income or uh, a single payer health care system. And so this Fox article gets into why. Right. Why would they be for it? If I can get to that part here. Single payer, Spencer insists, this is Richard Spencer, who is the president of the National Policy Institute and the guy who coined the term alt-right in a, in a uh, full-blown absolute racist, he claims that single-payer would serve our constituency, read white people, give the right in answer to the appeal of social Democrats like Bernie Sanders and encourage the growth of the alt-right movement. So many writers, activists, and content creators on our side shy away from becoming more involved, not just out of fear of social punishment, but out of fear of being fired and losing their health insurance. Moreover, as soon as health care becomes a public issue, an alt-right government could use that power to promote a more vigorous, healthy white race on a number of dimensions. When single-party health care is implemented, issues like food safety, nutrition, and obesity become matters of public concern, Spencer writes. It will draw more attention to the alternative we are presenting to America's current lowest common denominator society. So the, the narrative here by Vox, which I think is accurate, is that the alt-right has clung to the idea or adopted this idea of single payer because their strategy, and this is, again, where they align with Trump, their strategy is national populism, right? Their strategy is let's do what the middle class, what's going to benefit the middle class economically, at least in their perception, benefit the middle class in order to, for the explicit purpose of creating a political constituency for the purpose of seizing power and advancing the alt-right agenda. That's what they're trying to do. That's what, that is why they take the positions that they take, not because they're proceeding from any sort of ideological basis or philosophical foundation. And this is what distinguishes the alt-right from the just right, right? This is what can, what distinguishes alt-right from conservative, they don't care about taxes. They don't care about budgets. They don't care about the deficit. They don't care about the national debt. You know, they're not, they're not trying to, to reform entitlements. You know, 
or to or to even keep government small. That's not their concern at all. Any of the things that you identify with traditional conservative positions, that's not what the alt-right is interested in. What the alt-right is interested in is white nationalism. That's who they are. And just like the, the liberals, the leftists, the communists started calling themselves progressives in order to rebrand themselves because it sounds better, it sounds warm and fuzzy, the white nationalists have taken to calling themselves the alt-right. And even though the left utilizes that term to smear all of us, right, any of us who are right of center are the alt-right, according to the left, we should not allow that abuse of language to distract us from the fact that the alt-right is something that actually exists and must be fought and must be distinguished from actual conservatism, actual Republican ideas, actual liberty. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Glenn Beck is next. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.